Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Tredison. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Nadipuram here, or Dr. Santosh, however you want to put it. Pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher today. So formal. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to leave All right. Don't leave at it. <laughs> Happy holidays, you guys. I hope you're all enjoying your break. I know I am, presumably, by the time this goes out. I'm sipping on some cocoa. Hugging my baby Yoda plush. Yeah, I, I'm super excited for those. Those are going to fly off the shelves. It's so cute. Um, now, in a running gag, yeah. have you seen Frozen 2 yet? Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's going to be episodes and episodes of this. Okay, this weekend, I'm going to take my girls and I'm going to take Sanvi and we're going to go see Frozen 2. Okay, because today, our stocking stuffer is kind of tied into it not really i lie but <laughs> you can you can segue it in if you want to um many disney classics were written by hans christian anderson especially to- those uh featuring uh very pale people who would mutilate themselves for love and today we're going to talk about hans christian graham <laughs> <laughs> yeah small departure because Today's stocking stuffer, you lucky listeners, is going to be about one of the oldest, most reliable tests within our careers, the Gram Stain. Love this thing. Absolutely love it. And uh, I was telling Dr. Josh before we started recording in here, 
our microbiology lab still does a gram stain. Um, when we get a blood culture positive, that's one of the first pieces of information that we get. And it still, to this day, helps us kind of guide and narrow antibiotic therapy before we have any other knowledge on what this we bacteria gram stain is growing when in a you're sleeping. We gram stain if you're sick. We check <laughs> at the color of cell walls to find out if our antibiotics will stick. Oh, oh. <laughs> I like it. So yeah. let's let's briefly go into a mini sode about Hans Christian Graham. Not Anderson, who wrote the Ice Queen, which Frozen was based off, but I just really want mm -hmm. Santosh to see that movie. Those of you who've seen it at home, <laughs> are you also lost in the woods? Aww. As I am. <laughs> It's a very cute song. I've been listening to the soundtrack because my girls are absolutely obsessed with the soundtrack. So I'm I'm very happy to say I'm already familiar with all of the songs. But uh, yes, I, I think it is very important for me to go see this movie. But in the meanwhile, let's talk about bacterial cell walls. Right, so Hans Christian Graham originally studied botany at Copenhagen. And this introduced him to the basis of pharmacology. And we've already talked about how closely botany and pharmacology are linked with my Netflix series I'm pitching, Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist. <laughs> Love that guy. Every time I read a little bit more about him, I was like, Indiana Jones, whatever. It should have been Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist. One day. One day he'll be recognized. <laughs> but Hans yeah. Christian Graham... Uh, once he graduated from medical school, he traveled through Europe and ended up settling in Berlin. And as an aside, he was actually originally studying human red blood cells and was among the first to recognize macrocytes or abnormally large red blood cells were characteristic of pernicious anemia. Mm -hmm. while, B12 deficiency. While he was in his lab examining different tissues, one of them was a lung tissue from a patient who had died of pneumonia. And... During the course of studying these cells, he discovered that certain stains were preferentially taken up and retained by bacterial cells. So in the first step, he took a smear of fluid on a glass slide over a burner flame and poured a little bit of crystal violet solution over it. And I, I'm going to get real technical here, and I'm going to toss that potato back to Santosh. So after he yeah. rinsed it, with water, he added what's called Lugol's solution, or a potassium mm -hmm. triiodide, and this acted as a mordant, so it killed the cells, fixed the dye in place. Then, like any good holiday party, he poured alcohol over it to wash away all the <laughs> sorrows, and noted that the bacteria he had done all these treatments to retains the color of the species, or retains the color of the stain, which he called gram-positive, while other species became bleached or decolorized. So he was testing this method of staining on multiple cells, but he couldn't quite figure out why some of them would hold the stain and some wouldn't until he realized that the ones holding the stain had specific shapes. And his initial work with this staining process was performed on the bunch of grapes Streptococcus pneumoniae and Klebsiella pneumoniae. So... Santosh, you are our pediatric infectious doc and researcher. Why don't you tell us what a gram stain looks like from a research standpoint? Yeah, this is one of the first things you do when you get bacteria in a tissue. So bacteria grows in a blood culture. You take a little bit of the culture medium out. You put it on a slide. You gram stain it. 
Uh, you want to find out whether there's bacteria growing in a lymph node that you've removed or a bunch of pus. You gram stain it. Uh, let's let's go back a little bit to what the bacterial cell wall looks like. So if you have a gram-positive organism, your streptococci, your staphylococci, you have kind of a thin cell wall, and that's about it. You know, it's, it's like uh, not... dressing for winter in California. You throw on a light coat and you go about your business. Whereas a thick cell wall is like dressing for winter in Chicago. Yeah, so gram-positive bacteria, a single membrane, a monoderm, and then it's got peptidoglycan on the outside, which is a combo molecule of sugar and protein. Um, and those gram-positive bacteria will uh, take up the, the darker stains and not de-stain very much. And you'll get nice purple coloring on it. And then the gram-negative bacteria, you've got a, a thin layer of peptidoglycan, but you've got giant membranes. So it's got a double layer. It's got a cell membrane and then a peptidoglycan and then another cell membrane. And uh, we do have many other types of bacteria which are gram-variable and they're indeterminate and they're not identifiable by this method. But the, the majority of pathogen-causing bacteria that you're going to see, whether it's a urinary tract infection or an ammonia or a sepsis, you'll be able to use this gram stain in order to find it. So the, the gram-positive organisms will take up the, the dark stain, the, the crystal violet, um, and then the iodine, and then it'll hold on to it. Uh, and, and when you look at it under the microscope, after the de-stain, it'll stay purple. The gram-negative organisms, the decolorizer will actually wash away a lot of the color, and you'll end up with this nice, beautiful pink. And what uh, Hans Christian Graham was looking at that really intrigued him when he looked under the microscope was that Klebsiella, in addition to being gram-negative, in, in addition to being pink, it was also a bacillus. So it was long and rod-shaped, whereas the gram-positive organisms, by and large, that he was seeing were circles or spheres, which we call cocci or C-O-C-C-I. And those were, if there were staphylococci, they were bunches of grapes. And if there were streptococci, they were chains, uh, looking almost like a pearl necklace. So at first, these were very tightly associated. Oh, gram-positive organisms are cocci, and gram-negative organisms are bacilli. We soon found out that you can have gram-positive bacilli as well, and there's a few gram-negative cocci out there. But this observation was really, really amazing. And to this day, uh, it is a foundation on which we can say, okay, our patient is infected with XYZ, and I need to give this antibiotic in order to treat them. Uh, and so, yeah, I can, I can say, you know, oh, it's staph, you know, it's gram-positive coccine clusters. Uh, I, you know, I may have to use vancomycin or another drug which targets gram-positives. I see gram-negative rods growing everywhere. Oh my gosh, I have to worry about uh, E. coli or pseudomonas, and, and I have to use a completely different set of antibiotics uh, in order to treat for those. And yeah, in, in the matter, Josh, of minutes after getting a positive culture, I can tell with this gram stain, 
how I need to change my antibiotics to better treat my patient until I get more information. And not only is it one of the most rapid and quick guides to selecting an antibiotic, it also gives you a quick idea based on body systems because gram-positive and gram-negative organisms do tend to congregate amongst certain body systems. The bladder tends to have a lot of gram-negative. The lungs tend to get a lot of gram-positive with some mixed. So you can get a feel for where the infection is likely to be as well from a gram stain. Now, Graham himself was a very modest man. And when he first discovered this method of staining to identify bacteria, he actually remarked, he's like, well, I I went ahead and, and published the method, though I'm aware it's very defective and imperfect. But I hope that in other investigators, it'll turn out to be useful. And he didn't use a counter stain. So his original one either showed, you know, gram positive, or nothing, a lack of staining. So the four basic steps mm-hmm. yeah. include applying a primary stain, which is usually something called crystal violet, to a heat-fixed smear of a bacterial culture. Then you add a fixing agent like iodine. Then you wash the stain off using a rapid decolorization with alcohol. And finally, you counter stain. That was the last step that Graham never did. You counterstain with saffronin yeah. or a basic fusion. How does this change it? Well, when you add the decolorizer, like the alcohol, it interacts with the lipids, the fatty cells of the cell membrane. A gram-negative cell gets all those lipids washed away. So the sugar layer can be stained with the counterstain. In contrast, a gram-positive cell actually becomes dehydrated from being washed with alcohol, and it holds on to its stain that much tighter. Now, This decolorization step is the hardest part of the whole gram stain, and it's critical and must be timed correctly because if you leave that crystallizing agent or if you leave the decolorizing agent on too long, you lose the stain regardless of the kind of cell. And too long is a matter of seconds. So this really is key. It's really dependent on perfect timing to conduct. This is kind of why... For a very, very long time, I mean, this started back in 1858, we, this stain was extremely technician dependent. You had to have the right decolorizer. Um, uh, you know, ethanol was useful, but uh, you had to make sure that, you know, back in the days before industrial manufacturing, that your ethanol was pure and all that other stuff. And you had to pay attention to what you were doing. You had to put that de-stain on and get it off in a hurry. There are newer ways to do it now where you're actually supposed to trickle it down the side. Um, But Josh, the cool thing that we have nowadays is we have automatic staining machines. You actually just put your slide in place and then you hit go. And as long as you have the solutions loaded into some cartridges, the machine actually runs it through all the steps in a very precise manner for you so that there's no like person to person or slide to slide variation. It's super cool. I could complain about a robot stealing my job, but I don't really want that job. And as we talk (laughs) about this, the introduction of gram staining at the time it was first discovered, super popular. It was around the 1940s to 1960s. Originally, 
it was doctors performing the gram stains, doctor scientists, because that's mm -hmm. what we actually were back in the old days. We'd see the patient, we'd get the history, we'd get the physical. If there was a procedure, you know, like drawing blood or any of this stuff, we wouldn't call and say nurse or anything like that. We would draw the blood and then you take the sample yourself down to a place. And this is actually why we wore lab coats and also why lab coats are no longer relevant. But you would go down into the lab and you would process the sample and often read the results yourself. So you'd look at the slide and you'd make the diagnosis um, without the help of anybody else so it was extremely slow because you know you could only do this for one patient at a time um, you know and you didn't have all the wonderful support staff that we have today but it was also you know kind of a satisfying time because you know you were the one diagnosing the patient start to finish and then you know selecting a treatment and then even when it came to administering the therapy, you'd be the one, you know, either doing the injection or hanging the same. Nowadays, we have interdisciplinary teams, which I much prefer. But as I said, in the 1940s to 1960s, the general feeling was that the gram stain should be considered part of the physical exam of the patient with an acute infection and belongs in the repertoire of all physicians delivering primary care. However, as we began to see hospital systems take the place of local docs making house calls, the clinician began to rely on a central lab, a micro lab, for stain culture and antimicrobial testing results, which means that while interns in the clinics and at bedside originally got training in how to do a gram stain from their house staff, Without oversight from laboratory physicians and scientists, the skills in gram stain deteriorated. And, you know, I used to have to do, during residency, I did learn how to do my own gram stain, how to do my own urinalysis. I would go into the lab and actually mm -hmm. do those to, to gain those skills. And the second I left residency, I have never once been back down to the lab. No. <laughs> I just wait. I, sometimes I'll call them. I'm like, hey, can you give me my culture results now? But the problem with that is you've divorced the diagnosis from the technique. So as laboratory testing expanded, you had government regulation to make sure you would get accurate results by trained technologists because clinician errors were increasing because they weren't, you know, laboratory scientists. And because of an increased frequency of gram stain errors performed by clinicians, microscopes and uh, lab reagents were actually removed from near patient locations. <laughs> and, you know, there there's a little bit of toxicity that comes, you know, if you have standing bottles of ethanol and, you know, this is just one procedure that you have. There, the other laboratory techniques would sometimes require more volatile chemicals and more harmful chemicals and stuff that could aerosolize. Early on, when the doctor was seeing, you know, one patient at a time, um, it wasn't as big of a deal. You could pay attention to the procedure and everything that you were doing. But now that we're in an era of volume, you know, we have to take care of a lot of patients at once. I really, really trust a good technician who has done a procedure like this one a thousand times to execute this a lot more consistently than I can. And Josh, I'll go one step further. Um, I, I trust them 
I, I trust their eyes and their microscopy much better than my own. Um, even though I, I do use the microscope frequently and, you know, I'm, I'm reading histological sections as part of my research, those guys, because they're looking at gram stains regularly and sections regularly, and because they have a very rigorous and standardized way to do it, I trust them a ton. This is still the realm of pathology. So there's anatomic pathology and there's clinical pathology. Sitting above all those wonderful technicians and everything else who do our micro work every day is always still an, uh, an MD. Over the years, it's evolved from a clinician performed oh, yeah. bedside test to a remote test assigned in many cases to the least experienced lab worker with minimal training needed to pass basic requirements. And the, the gram stain has gone from the best rapid test in microbiome to a subjective, poorly controlled microbiology test, which, you know, even though differentiating bacteria to gram positive or negative is still fundamental to most of the ways we identify and select antibiotics, the gram staining method itself is prone to error and lacks standardization, which Graham warned of when his work was published in 1884. Remember, he even said, he's like, well, it's a little defective and imperfect, but I hope that it will turn out to be useful. Nowadays, we tend to use PCR stain or PCR and DNA amplification and other techniques. However, gram staining has seen a surge of new popularity again in being used to help identify new antibiotics. And that's where you have these highly skilled clinicians and laboratory scientists reading them on the research front as we fight up the battle against antimicrobial resistance. So I don't really see the gram stain used. Like I'll have a patient come in and whereas in the beginning of my residency, it would just be standard to expect that if somebody had an infection, there'd be a gram stain performed before they even hit the floor. Nowadays, the only thing I'll find out a gram stain from is when the patient's already been hospitalized for several days and I get a blood culture back and that's the first step while I wait for the other information. So it's still useful, but it's no longer absolutely 100% necessary because by the time I get gram stain information on the clinic side, I've already had the person on antibiotics for a couple days that I've picked based on what I think the infection is, and the culture comes back and confirms and gives me much more detail. So the gram stain isn't really used or it's not as useful in a clinical setting as more as it used to be. We have better tests these days. But historically, fascinating. <laughs> um, it does depend on the lab. I agree with you by and large in community-based hospitals. Um, if you're in a you know clinic, especially if you're in a remote area and you're thin on really good technicians and lab scientists, then you're absolutely right. Um, in an institution like the one that I work in, which is large and urban and run by an excellent uh, microbiology PhD, we still do get a first pass on uh, gram stains. And in pediatrics, especially kids who are septic, that blood culture will actually come back positive in about 12 hours. And so when I have the technician and they say, okay, well, you know, 12 hours, it comes back positive. Yes, the kid's already on antibiotics, but they can turn to me and they can say, oh, you know, doc, you've got, you know, gram positive coccine clusters or you've got gram negative rods. 
then I can say, oh, all right, this came from a urinary tract infection or this bacteria came from the skin or they have a pneumonia. Um, and I actually can start to tailor my antibiotics, you know, right then and there. Josh, I got to give it to you. We have rapid testing. Um, we have a beautiful machine called a Malditoff, which actually tells me what bacteria I have by reading mass spectrometry, the the proteins in the ribosomes and, and telling you, you know, what the what the bacteria is with insane accuracy. And then we have other rapid fluorescent type of things where you get a fluorescent marker which hybridizes with the right part of a stretch of DNA on the bacteria and the, the little machine reads it and says, you've got E. coli. And at the same time, it tells me what the E. coli is vulnerable to. Um, and that it's compressed down from two, three days down to like eight hours. So that is a lot of information that Graham Stain was not able to tell me in the past. If there's ever like an apocalypse type of situation, well, what techniques do we have? Well, you know, we I'm have like this little Graham town Stain. To town. And Graham Stain, you, know, you can do because you don't need to refrigerate anything. You know, you don't need any special equipment. I, you just need a little tub yep. so that you can put your dyes in there. That's about it. Well, we would show up in a town. Here's how this would play out. We'd show up in a town and we'd be like, we're two traveling doctors. And people would be thrilled. Why? And then For being a we witch? would tell them, it turns out that you have <laughs> tiny little bugs in your blood. And they'd be I like, can tell you no, exactly we don't. And then you'd why. Lab kit He's sick. And no. Oh, thank you, doctor. He's a witch. And, uh, but the last, the last moment or two on these gram stains, again, the reason that I think it's phasing out is although it's quick and easy to interpret, <laughs> It's great when speed is of the essence. Like if you have a spinal infection, you need to know it within minutes if there's something there. Yeah. <laughs> However, there are some bugs well, where the usefulness diminishes because a few bacteria species will stain positive early in the growth and then become gram negative later. So depending on when in the infection you catch them, the stain can change. So it's a very, even when performed by a very talented you know, interpreter, the test itself has varied utility depending on when you catch the infection. Right. And the other issue that, you know, we always have to be concerned about is cocaine and heroin resistance. You know, when Graham Stain first, oh, Graham Stain, that's not his name. When Graham first came out with his Graham Stain, um, there were no antibiotics. I've got a you know, you, you didn't Why do you do some cocaine about it? Or, it would definitely make your throat less sore uh, for you know, that short amount of time. The, uh, I, I think the utility when you did not have any antimicrobial resistance, when you could say, oh, I've got a gram negative organism, you've got a gram positive, especially like what you were saying, Josh, is, oh, it's growing in the spinal fluid. It's, it's growing in this liquid that I pulled out of the lung or in the abdomen, which in that time, you know, you actually had to deliver the antibiotic right to that but who, but who knows maybe one of our listeners out there will be the inventor of the next version of gram stain and then i can talk about them in a delightfully immature manner in the next talking stuffer or future episodes of travel medicine so that's it for this stocking stuffer i hope you're all stuffing yourselves silly and having delightful holidays this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. 
Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with anything we use to research, along with links to sources used to research this episode. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 